TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. What does the future hold for St. Louis and how do we get there? This is Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome into Nothing Impossible, our show about St. Louis innovation. And we're going to go from ag tech, I guess we're going to go from the fields to the grocery store, and then we're going to wrap it up with the latest on a new headquarters development in downtown St. Louis. Well, I like this idea of going from not only just to the fields, but below ground in the fields to the grocery store. It's like going running the gamut. Replenishing those fields so that the shelves don't go bare at the grocery store, really have to replenish the shelves too. We're going to take you to the Danforth Plant Science Center and talk with Dr. Allison Miller, who's the director of the new Roots for Restoration Biology Integration Institute. And then we're going to take you to Schnook Markets. And we're going to talk with Dave Steck, who's an executive there, about those new robots that you see roaming the aisles. They've been in a few selected stores for a few years now, but they're going to deploy them chain-wide. The first in the world to deploy this kind of technology chain-wide, Travis. When do they unionize? That's what I want to know. Will there be any humans that are displaced by this? Of course, we will ask that question. And then we're going to finish up with the latest on McCormick Baron Salazar announcing a new headquarters in downtown St. Louis. All the questions about that, including are there incentives involved? We'll answer those coming up as well. Full show. We should jump right to it. Stick around. We have more Nothing Impossible right after this. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. As we continue our innovation conversation in St. Louis, Michael and Travis with you. And there's going to be something new you encounter in the aisles at Schnucks, or maybe not. Depends on your location. It's called... Tally. Tally's designed to actually be a very shy robot. Tally, that's right. It's a robot, Travis. And joining us is Dave Steck, the Vice President of IT Infrastructure and Application Development for Schnook Markets. Thank you so much for joining us, Dave. Thank you very much. So introduce us. We just heard from Brad Begolia of the manufacturer, Symbi Robotics there. But tell us about Tally. Uh, When did this debut in, in certain Schnook stores and what does it do? So Tally debuted in... 2017 is when we first started testing with it, and we had put it in uh, initially in one store just for three days while I followed it around for three days and uh, just watched it and saw it interact with customers and then talk to customers. Then we did a three-store pilot, and then we followed that up with uh, deployment to 16 stores, and uh, after doing some ROI analysis with an outside consulting firm, um, we put it into, into 62 stores, and now we're expanding to 111. It is a fully autonomous robot that is scanning the shelves for uh, out-on-shelf, 
so if an item's not there, it's going to notify us that the, the, the shelf is empty. It's also looking for any missing promotional bibs. So if a sales sales tag bib is missing, it's going to notify us on, on that as well. We're also collecting uh, the exact XYZ coordinates for that item so we know exactly where it is, and then we can build that into um, our Schnooks Reward app so the customers will be able to sequence their shopping list for the store that they're in. And if they're looking for something, they can hit the search window in our in our app and type in what they're looking for, and we can tell them exactly where the item is at. Well, how has the rollout, the literal rollout, been of Tally? Uh, it, it's been good. I mean, there any any new technologies you're always going to struggle here and there on on different things when we when we first started it was mostly an IT project um, and then it's it's grown into much more involvement with the store operations team and trying to understand the best way to deliver this information to the store teammates when we first started it was uh, as soon as we could get the information from Tally, which it was traversing three times a day, and within 15 minutes we knew uh, when an item was out on shelf, so we were sending that to the store teams, and it just became something demoralizing for them because it could never felt like they could get ahead of it. It was, uh, well, I just took care of this problem, and now you're telling me about another. So in partnering with our store operations team, we, we uh, refined that process so that we're not inundating the store teammates and we're giving them something that's, that's manageable. Is this something that's going to replace jobs that exist? Does it free people up to do other things? How does this impact the, the team? It's one of the questions that we always get asked on this, and it, it, it's not replacing uh, store teammates. This is a task that uh, is actually very, very difficult for the store teams to get right. Uh, we did follow behind the store teams when they were when they were doing this, and we found that Tally was anywhere from four times to fifteen times more accurate on scanning out on shelf. It's it's about the customer experience and making sure that we have the product on the shelf for the customers. It's not you know the end all be all. Um, there could be outs on the shelf that are not something that the store teams can correct. There could be an item that's out at the warehouse or we're not able to get it from the manufacturer. So there's, there's other reasons for outs, but this is, this is one that, that does help the store teammates. You mentioned the figure about more addressable out of stocks than versus going manual, but I'm also interested in the figure of the amount of reduction of out of stock items. Seems like that, like Tally has reduced basically empty shelves by almost a third. Well, what we found in, in doing our analysis is that of the items that Tally is finding, that uh, we have about about 30%, yes, that Tally, that, that are actionable, actionable by the store teams in the store. So we believe that there is inventory in the store, in the back room, or it's on display somewhere else in the store. So the store teammates can bring that item to the shelf. The other items we, we we're starting we're starting to address by swimming upstream and saying okay where else in the supply chain are we having these breakdowns that is causing the item not to get to the store in time for the for the store teammates and we've we've also layered in uh data science and data and analytics on top of this to supplement tally because tally can't get everywhere in the store or there could be an item that's misplaced and tally would see it and think it doesn't check to make sure that 
that is an actual box of Cheerios there. It just looks to see that there's a box there. And by supplementing that with data and analytics, we can tell by movement analytics if an item appears to be out, and we can use the same rules that we apply for tally to make sure that we, when we dispatch the store teammate there, with a, that it is actually something that they can action on. There is the integration into your uh, replenishment system, inventory system, and then it also seems like, you know, if, if you've ordered delivery before, you're always watching to see, all right, when is the shopper going to come on and tell me what they don't have? And I wish I had known what they didn't have beforehand. I would have just chosen something else to begin with. It seems like this helps to make the de- Schnooks Delivers more accurate for the shopper. Yeah, we, we have the data available for... We utilize Instacart for our shopping, and that that data is available, but it's an integration that we haven't developed or Instacart hasn't developed to know that when we're saying it's out on the shelf that they're providing an an alternative uh, selection for the customer. But that that is a capability that that we're looking at and we'll build on once we get this fully deployed. It doesn't make sense to have it there if you're only doing it for a a small segment of the stores. Yeah, it sounds like Schnucks is out ahead of this technology company, Instacart. You're waiting for them to catch up. Uh, (laughs) Well, we're waiting for them to catch up in some places, but they have an awful lot of work to do as well. And uh, so it's it's a good partnership with them. and, And we do spend quite a bit of time working together with them. Uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about how important innovation is to a a sector like the grocery business. Yeah, it's a that's a good question. It's it's I think it's extremely important as you as you look at the e-com space. I, I don't I, I don't know that if you just sit back on your laurels and say I'm a brick and mortar store and I'm a grocery store and everybody needs food. I don't need to worry about innovating and, and being technically savvy. I, I don't know that that's a good decision to make. I think over time, this e-commerce space is going to erode the brick-and-mortar space. And if you're not adapting to it and adjusting to it, then then in the future, you may not exist. And, and a little bit more about Schnucks and, and how you've really gone big into technology and innovation. Uh, a couple of years ago, you topped the Dunhumby Index for most uh, innovative local shopper, if I remember correct. And whether it's Tally or working with Worldwide Technology on Schnucks Rewards, how has regional grocer, in the context of these multinational corporations, how has a regional grocer been able to accomplish so much innovation? Is it in these partnerships? Is it, it realizing we, we don't have coders, you know, in every corner here, we're going to find companies that can help us in certain specialties. Is that the key? Yeah, it is. It is about partnerships. It's looking for the the companies that are up and coming. There's a lot of startups that we that we deal with. There's a lot of things that we've tested that the end consumer is never going to see because we've we've looked at it and we've dismissed it. I, I think one of the biggest changes was you know changes in the, in the leadership and uh, in a a new corporate philosophy of, of trying new things. So there's, we, we embrace innovation uh, and we don't just, you know, dismiss it out of hand. We're not, we're not afraid of it. And it's, it's good to try something and fail because you still learn something and it, you take those learnings and adjust and, and see if you can pivot and, and do something a little differently from, from those learnings. What role do the customers play in informing Schnooks as to what might be next? 
is it just purely by the buying behavior? Do you do surveys of your of your cluster customer base? There are always surveys that are that are done. Uh, it's part of the part of the receipt process. We are collecting that that information as as folks get their receipt. We ask them to go on and 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 rate us and tell us areas that we need to improve. There is also on occasion uh, focus groups that are conducted to to get the voice of the customer as well. And back to Tally for just a second. Uh, I love this quote from Brad Begolia of the manufacturer of the robots, Symbi Robotics. Um, if you're wondering, all right, is this is this robot going to bother me while I'm trying to decide between uh, you know Cookie Crisp and Cheerios? If you come into an aisle where Tally is and you actually step in front of the robot to grab a product, uh, the robot will actually you know yield to you, uh, either go around you or sort of exit that aisle because it's uh, essentially congested. Dave, can you tell us more about the reaction, the response, how people interact with Tally? Especially, I can imagine children are pretty fascinated. Oh, children are definitely fascinated. Uh, there's there's quite a few social media posts with with uh, children interaction with a with a robot. Well, there's one that recently went viral. It was a it was a young girl, and it was probably the the funniest video I've I've seen posted of of the interaction. You you will always doesn't matter what you're doing. Uh, you will always find somebody that has something bad to say about it. Or you can give them a gold bar and they'll tell you it's too heavy. Um, but you know, for the most part, the customer reaction is is either very positive or they pretty much ignore the robot altogether. There was one video that went viral. Correct. It was, it's it's uh, something that we that we caught on on our social media feed. We asked the asked the customer for permission to post it, and we posted it to our our Facebook and Instagram accounts. Well, Dave, to wrap up, can you just kind of put this into context? Uh, your your release says Schnooks is the first grocer in the world to utilize this kind of technology at scale. Uh, just put this in in context uh, for us. Well, we. Uh you know, small regional grocer, not small, smallish regional grocer, the 111 stores. We, uh, we're the first ones to use it chain wide. There's been other retailers that have, have tried it. Walmart tried it, um, in about 300 of their stores, although we're not really certain how far they got into, into that 300, if they actually got to that point or not. And then last year they announced that they were abandoning the project altogether because they couldn't figure out how to make it work. I think that really is a testament to the stick to of of Snooks and the willingness to, to try new things and, and and just get a technology to work. We knew that we knew that it would work. It was just trying to figure out the secret sauce to get it there. And I, I'm pretty proud of, of the team that it took to, to pull this together and the partnership with store operations. It, it's, it wasn't easy, but it's definitely something that's going to make a difference for the for the consumer. All right. Thanks so much. This is Dave Steck, uh, Vice President of IT Infrastructure and App Development at Snook Market. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And stick around for more Nothing Impossible right after this. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Well, as we continue talking about St. Louis Innovation, there's some big news from the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, a $12.5 million grant from the National Science Foundation to establish a new institute, the New Roots for Restoration Biology Integration Institute. And Dr. Allison Miller joins us on Nothing Impossible to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Miller. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Dr. Miller, can you give us an understanding of what the scope of this grant is? 
Sure. So the National Science Foundation has established the Biology Integration Institute program to fund research that bridges different disciplines within biology with the goal of addressing major challenges in society. And so New Roots for Restoration Biology Integration Institute is focused on the big question of how we might be able to restore degraded landscapes. And it's estimated that about 75% of the world's land have been impacted by human activities. Um, This includes both activities related to agriculture as well as urbanization and, and other factors. So the idea of new routes for restoration is to build on a lot of excellent work that's going on already in the field of restoration ecology, but to incorporate into that plant organismal systems. And what I mean by that is information about the the um, traits, the features, and their functions, both above ground and even more importantly, below ground of plants. So the, the integration, one of the points of integration of this institute is to take pretty sophisticated um, plant biology techniques um, that allow us to capture information about plants both above ground and below ground and to think about that in the context of the communities in which those plants live and the soil ecosphere uh, that the plants are in as well with the idea that perhaps we can uncover some relationships between plant traits and soil, soil restoration, community restoration. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we got to this point? How did this situation evolve to the the point in time where we need an institute like this? Well, one of the things that happens in the sciences is that scientists are so deeply involved in the specific questions that they're asking um, and the techniques that they're developing that they tend to get somewhat siloed, which means they're really just working very hard and very deeply on one specific question. Um, And what this institute is trying to do is to force scientists to pull out a bit of those silos and to look across the landscape and to work across disciplines. And so how we got to to having a need for a biology integration institute is to really encourage scientists um, to work work outside of their discipline or work adjacent to their discipline to solve these these larger uh, these larger challenges. Now I don't know if you were asking how we got to the question of needing to address restoration or how our landscapes uh, were degraded to to begin with. Is yes, that is that yes. okay? So excellent question, Michael. There's there's a, just a lot of change happening on our planet today, and it's been going on uh, for a while. And I, I think as the human population has grown, the, the population of humans has doubled in my lifetime. Um, and I think as our agricultural systems have expanded, agriculture is the world's largest and most rapidly expanding ecosystem on the planet. Um, and those efficient agricultural systems are often based on um annual plants, short-lived plants, plants that live for one year that are grown in monocultures. 
Um, and if you think about a, a cornfield or a wheat field, that would be an example of an annual monoculture. Um, those systems are very efficient for production, but they're less uh, they're they're less efficient when it comes to ecological services or general ecological uh, functions. And so one of the things we're thinking about is if agriculture is the world's largest and most rapidly expanding ecosystem on the planet, is there a way we can we can attempt to adapt to agriculture such that it mimics what we know is sustainable based on our understanding of natural systems? And can we use our understanding of plants and plant communities to try to make changes in this really large ecosystem such that it can be productive for people, but it can also provide the ecological services that uh, the planet needs? And just a couple of key points here. Most natural ecosystems um, are consist primarily, not exclusively, but primarily of longer-lived, what we call perennial plants, and plants that are growing together in mixtures. And those are two principles that this Biology Integration Institute is interested in uh, focusing on and seeing if we can apply that perennial that perennial plant habit and that uh, diverse, diverse community in an agricultural system. Dr. Miller, I wanted to ask about some of the partners involved in this. I know that Missouri Bot Botanical Gardens is involved, but there's folks from outside of the area too. Tell us about the partnerships. Sure. So I'm really excited about the, the team that we've brought together for this. So of course, the, the New Roots for Restoration Institute is based at the Danforth Plant Science Center. The Danforth Center is a global leader in plant phenotyping um, and capturing plant form and function. Beyond that, here in St. Louis, um, we've brought onto the team computer scientists from St. Louis University, um, the Missouri Botanical Gardens Shaw Nature Reserve, where we have one of our major experimental plantings in the ground now, and the St. Louis Science Center, whose YES program and, and GROW exhibit will be incorporated in our education and outreach uh, components. Now, Beyond that, the Danforth Center is, is the strength is, again, plant phenotyping, computer science, computational biology. We bridged to two important groups from the Danforth Center. One is um, a series of partners who are, are experts in ecology, restoration ecology, agricultural ecology, um, and microbial ecology. And, and for that, we've brought in a team from the University of Kansas, this is a group of community ecologists and microbial ecologists who've been studying the North American prairie uh, for many years and trying to understand patterns of biodiversity in the prairie and how that affects basic ecosystem functioning. We've also brought in a team from the Chicago Botanical Garden, which is very interested in restoration ecology uh, and is working to restore natural landscapes um, in in um, as sustainable a way as possible. We also have a group uh, working in primary, primarily uh, agricultural settings. So our partners at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, um, our, our lead there is Tim Cruz, who's a soil ecologist and has been studying agroecology both in the Midwest but also in the Southwest uh, for many years. 
And beyond the Land Institute, our other partner is in Vermont. Um, that's a little bit outside of our I-70, I-55 <laughs> corridor. Um, but we wanted to have somebody uh, have a group that was outside of the Midwest. And for that, we've brought in Eric von Wetberg, who is a plant uh, evolutionary geneticist who uh, will will bring in this Northeastern perspective. I I left one group off, um, which is the University of Missouri's Center for Agroforestry. Um, That's a group that will actually allow us to think about how trees, um, the the presence of a tree in the landscape changes plant communities um, and, and ecosystem function. We're talking with Dr. Allison Miller, who's a member of the Danforth Plant Science Center, professor of biology at St. Louis University, and the director of the upcoming New Roots for Restoration Biology Integration Institute at Danforth. And I'm wondering the discoveries, the understandings, the products, the approaches that come out of this, will these organizations be the ones who go out to implement them? Will they issue open source guidelines to follow? Could there be products and startups that are spun out of the Institute. Um, What happens to really commercialize or at least spread across the country the uh, discoveries that come out of this? Great question. Uh, We, I think we're thinking about the products of this Institute in two big buckets. Um, One, we're hoping that the the data that we generate, the analyses that we complete, um, and the results that, that we are able to produce will provide some information on how we might select plants for use in restoration um, of natural landscapes. So based on plant roots and shoots, our hope is that we can make recommendations on how to go about populating restored ecosystems, restored natural ecosystems. The second big bucket really has to do with agricultural applications. Um, and we are anticipating that our results will be used in what we like to call reimagined agricultural ecosystems. I mentioned our partners at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. And the Land Institute has been, has really pioneered and very strongly advocated for a form of agriculture that mimics natural ecosystems, again, in their perennially and in their diversity. And so our hope is that some of the work that we do might be used to predict how individual species or even specific genotypes um, might affect those agricultural landscapes in positive ways in terms of their relationship to the soil and their capacity to interact with other species that they might be growing with in what we call polyculture agriculture, which is the, would be the opposite of a monoculture where you just have a single species. Well, Dr. Miller, we're thinking a lot about the next generation of how we use the land. What about the next generation of stewards of the land, especially people that historically haven't been part of the scientific community? This grant really helps bring more people into this field, correct? That's our hope. So our vision was that through building this institute, the institute consists of different institutions across the Midwest and then in Vermont. Um, and what we were trying to do was was to um, build a system where students, people with interest in agriculture or in restoration or in nature could enter the institute in any varieties 
any variety of ways, multiple points of entry, be that through high school internships, college um, research experiences for undergraduate programs, graduate students, postdocs, even the general public. And then once they once they kind of became part of the institute, then they would be able to see not only what was happening in a particular location, say at the University of Missouri, but because of the, the breadth of the institute, participants would, would be, become familiar with research happening at other, um, other groups affiliated with the Biology Integration Institute. So, for example, if a student entered the institute at Kansas, um, we have scheduled weekly meetings that are institute-wide over the summer and seminars where they learn not only about the research that's happening out at KU, but also what's going on in natural systems in Chicago and at the Danforth Center here in St. Louis, at the Land Institute in Salina. Many points of entry and ready mobility across the institute. We also fully anticipate being able to recruit and then retain students over multiple years. So for the for the student who might enter the institute in Kansas, our hope is that maybe in a subsequent year, they might end up serving uh, on a research team in another place associated with this institute. Another major strength here is that we have both rural institutions, those in, say, Columbia, Missouri, or Lawrence, Kansas, or Burlington, Vermont, but also institutions based in major metropolitan areas, like here in St. Louis and in the Chicago Botanic Garden outside of Chicago. And with that, we're really hoping that we can recruit a, a broad diversity of students, people who might not otherwise know about restoration, restoration ecology, agricultural systems, um, and provide a, a way in and then a way up and across uh, this, this field. So we're really excited about our capacity to reach a, a huge diversity of students and to, to train students across disciplines, across interests, um, and to break down some of those silos that I mentioned earlier in research that may have impeded some progress um, to date around these really challenging global issues such as, as restoration and, um, and agricultural ecosystems. Well, Dr. Miller, before we let you go, give us an idea of what does success look like? That is a, an excellent question that we've been asked uh, before about this institute. I... My hope is that this institute will um, inspire people who care about nature, about our land, about our agricultural systems, about our economies, about biodiversity, about human diversity, to come together around a common goal um, and make some progress in understanding above and below ground plant form and function and how those plant traits shape the communities that they live in and the soil ecosphere. And what that what success would look like then would be new understanding of how we might work towards restoring wild landscapes and reimagining agricultural landscapes based on that understanding of how plants interact with their communities and the soil. And to take it just a step further, um, I've been so 
encouraged by the by the outpouring of support for this um, institute, which was just announced this week, coming from a huge diversity of people, including folks working in prairie restoration uh, here in Missouri, people working in botanical gardens or in urban agricultural landscapes. My hope is that the information that we generate, the understanding that we advance here, would help to um, to improve and to expedite how we're how we're how we are restoring those landscapes and changing the way our agriculture works through actual plant selection based on trait data. The other the other major part of success, I think, again, is this idea of people coming together with shared passions and concern for our planet and our agricultural systems and broadening the range of people who are involved in this. This is not a field for one type of person nor for one discipline. We really need to, to team up and and work together. So I'm success to me would would mean that we're incorporating different perspectives, uh, different different backgrounds and different different viewpoints of our planet, all for the end goal of of trying to reverse some of the the damage that's been done to the landscapes. Um, and I really feel quite optimistic that that's possible, given some of the tools that we have and given the resolve of a broad diversity of people who are working hard towards a common goal. Well, for the broad diversity of what's happening in the ag tech sector in St. Louis, go to danforthcenter.org or just listen to the show, Travis. I feel like we've been touching on <laughs> ag tech in St. Louis just about every week here. It's been really heating up lately. Allison Miller, PhD, who's a professor of biology at SLU, member of the Danforth Center and the director of the New Roots for Restoration Biology Integration Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Stay tuned. We have more Nothing Impossible, St. Louis Innovation, right after this on KMOX. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Right now on KMOX, it's the co-founder and chairman of McCormick Baron Salazar, Richard Barron. Tell me about the new headquarters in downtown St. Louis. Well, we're uh, very excited to move to uh, 100 North Broadway, and uh, it'll give us an opportunity to... uh, make some changes with our offices uh, to bring them uh, up to date in many different ways, uh, including uh, new HVAC ventilation and all kinds of new gathering spots. Why was it important to stay in downtown St. Louis? Why is an urban environment so important for a headquarters like this? Well, we've been uh, in downtown and in the city of St. Louis since I started the company in 1968. So uh, for us, uh, the city has always been the place where we wanted to be, and our development activity has been primarily in the city of St. Louis. And uh, we feel it's important to uh, add to uh, uh, the downtown in terms of uh, employees uh, having the opportunity to go out and uh, have lunch or just uh, socialize out of the office. And, of course, uh, being located near the Arch and all the rest of the amenities in this area is uh, something we're uh, very excited about. 
Now, we heard from the alderman for downtown. He said that in the wake of uh, some recent crime issues that some companies had told them they were looking for new headquarters and it might not be downtown. They might leave the neighborhood. Was McCormick Barron one of those or was it downtown and that's it from the beginning? Uh, it was downtown from the beginning. Uh, we've never been uh, concerned about security issues in downtown. Uh, we think that, uh, that we have uh, good security. The police department does a good job. We have people on the street. And uh, that's never really been a concern of ours. Are there any incentives involved with this move? Uh, not really. Uh, we're, uh, we're moving over, and uh, we'll be part of... Uh, uh, the uh, the project is with with the owners. I think they were uh, uh, offered some uh, tax increment financing as part of the project, uh, and also it's uh, in an opportunity zone. But uh, nothing nothing for uh, for us at all. So much about working in an office has changed just health-wise in the last year. But then when you consider a technology, how has the changing nature of the workplace impacted you as you look for a new headquarters and now you design what it's going to be like? Uh, well, we have been uh, working remotely uh, literally for, you know, 14, 15 months. And uh, we've been able to overcome the, uh, the inconvenience for our employees working remotely. Some have really... Uh, uh, enjoyed it, and uh, we suspect there'll be some group of our folks that will continue to at least work partly remotely. We're making accommodations to that kind of uh, issue now, and uh, we, we suspect that things will change a bit. But all in all, uh, our productivity has remained high, and uh, we've been able to continue our work across the country. And finally, uh, 100 North Broadway, recognizable building right there next to the arch in the old courthouse. Um, it, it's looked a little tired in recent years, but you've mentioned this massive effort to redevelop it. Uh, what was it about this building that attracted you to it? Well, we've, we've uh, enjoyed it. Uh, we've had a long relationship with Trivers Associates, uh, our architects who are working on our office space. Uh, we've done many projects with them over the years. And uh, we uh, were very pleased with the new uh, uh, redevelopment effort made by the owners, the atrium and the kinds of things that will be there. And uh, in addition, obviously, to be close to the arch grounds, uh, an opportunity for our employees to get out during lunch hour and walk, walk in the morning. Uh, there'll be a fitness center there. And uh, it'll, it'll be a very, very nice uh, space now. And... Uh, the building will no longer be tired. It'll be very exciting, and uh, we think it'll provide a great working atmosphere for our employees. All right, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Download the podcast on the new app. It's the Odyssey app. Check it out. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Got clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back 3, you bet! Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. 
See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. A left 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 